welcome to everyone. Um, I hope you all had a good transition from 2020 to 2021. I want to wish you all a very successful 2021. I know we had had some challenges in the in, in, in the past year, and I want to be a, a better year. Um, to start with, uh, we are having three speakers who are joining us. Uh, we have got Fatima Hassans, we have got James Van Duren, we also have got Leslie London. Uh, to kick us off, I'm going to introduce James to start us with telling us what is COVID, what is COVID vaccine and so forth. James, can you take us on? Thank you, Tanashe, and welcome, everyone. So basically, just as an extension of the introduction, I'm James Van I'm from the Health Working Group of the C19 Coalition, and it was discussed in, in various groups in the coalition that it would be good to sort of get on the same page in terms of a basic understanding of uh, the, uh, the concept of vaccines, and then also looking at more the political and activist sides of um, vaccine access uh, issues. Um, and so that, that's basically how the, the session will be divided. I'll be speaking to some understanding of vaccines, what they are, how they work and what their value is. And then we'll be handing over to Prof. London and Fatima Hassan to, to speak to the issues of vaccine equity and, and access. So again, if there are questions during the session, uh, please ask them in the chat and some of the speakers will try to respond to you. Or if we don't have time or we simply don't have the answers, we'll make sure to get back to you through the um, uh, various people in, the, in your coalition working groups or your coalition um, conveners. So that's the, the commitment I make that I'll try and get answers to all of the questions uh, uh, that we do have. I'm going to turn off my video so that I can start with the presentation. This is a, a workshop that we've developed as a people's health movement as an extension of what came out of community workshops that we were running throughout last year, um, demonstrating the basic principles of, of, of social distancing um, to community health workers and uh, health committees, and also educating them on COVID itself, the signs and symptoms, and how to create action plans in their communities to slow, slow the spread of, of COVID. And we more and more have realized that um, it's important that we extend this, this workshop content to uh, the issue of vaccines. So some of the slides will come from the previous uh, workshops, but basically what I will talk about is where we are now in the, in the epidemic. Vaccines, what are they? COVID-19, uh, is vaccines on the horizon? What are some of the facts and the fiction around that? And then we'll be moving on to barriers to access, as I talked about. And hopefully we'll have some good time for, for community questions. In terms of, this is just an introduction that we give, uh, I give for PHM. I mean, we, I'm sure I'm preaching to the converted here. South African health landscape is unique, both in that it has a lot of ongoing pressures and historical inequality in terms of distribution of goods and services and economic opportunity. It also has what's called the quadruple burden of disease, high rates of maternal mortality, child health conditions, HIV, AIDS, and TB, and non-communicable diseases, 
and violence and in injury. And over 25 years since uh, democracy, we've had a, a very stretched healthcare system where a lot of people still lack access to primary uh, healthcare services that are quality and many facilities are understaffed with a huge urban rural divide. And then of course, on top of that, we have a huge public private uh, split uh, in terms of our healthcare provision. And onto that painting, we then project the new issue over the past year of COVID, COVID-19. So this is the, a, a chart that was um, plotted by a uh, public health um, lecturer that I'm in a WhatsApp group with of the cases over the past year um, and the, the death data over the past year, just to show um, um, basically what South Africa has gone through uh, and is currently gone, going through. And you'll see on the far right-hand side, uh, at the top is the new cases per day. This portion here on the, on the top right-hand side uh, is what we refer to as the second wave and what you would have heard of, referred to as the second wave, where there's a huge increase in the number of cases and also at the bottom right, a huge increase in the number of deaths that we've seen from late uh, November until uh, the present time. Okay, there's some early signs, some uh, optimistic signs that we might be reaching peaks uh, in the number of cases and, um, and deaths in some of the nine provinces, but it's still early um, to be able to tell. Okay. And in terms of all uh, the death um, from COVID, looking at um, some of the national statistics, there's an estimated 71,000 excess deaths uh, over the past uh, period from, from 6th of May till uh, 29 December. Obviously, it's difficult to determine what proportion of those are allocated to COVID or from other um, causes, but suffice to say that there's been a large number of, of, of deaths in the country, and I'm sure many of us uh, either know people who have died or know of people who have died of COVID in, in recent weeks and months. And every week we do hear of healthcare workers, community activists, et cetera, who, who have succumbed to the virus. But of course, the impact of COVID is not just direct, it is also indirect in terms of impact on healthcare services and on the livelihoods of, of South Africans. So the second wave is here. This is obviously presented in, in December, but, and, and through the first uh, period, we saw increased numbers of gatherings, increased interprovincial travel, um, uh, moved to level three lockdown. And in the context of all of this, people are getting tired. There's, there's fatigue from business community, there's exhaustion of healthcare workers, and there's also exhaustion of, I think, the C19 coalition and, and having to uh, keep, keep um, our energies up. But, there's this issue of vaccine rollout now being on the horizon, and we need to be uh, together in, in, and, and aligned in, in, in this. Okay. So just as a um, part of the slide that, that we give for um, um, our, our PHM presentations, this is just to help um, people understand um, uh, why COVID is, 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 has been able to have such a devastating effect on, on South Africa's communities, just initially because of COVID's rapid ability to spread. So this is just a chart showing that even if one person only infects three people with COVID in a few months, uh, we can rapidly increase um, from three to nine to 27 to 81 to 243 to 
729 to 2,000 infections in just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven steps. So in a very short period of time, um, the number of cases, uh, if um, preventative measures are not taken, um, can rapidly increase. And that is what we saw with the second wave. So before we get to vaccines, I think that it's important just to start off with what the, the key principles are that we have to keep pushing. Um, that those are physical distancing, wearing a mask, cleaning hands and surfaces, avoiding crowds, especially indoors, and staying at home if you have any any symptoms of of flu-like symptoms or illness. And I just put that in in front because although we're going to be talking about vaccines, it's going to be a while before we have uh, a significant coverage with vaccines, and we need to be making sure that we are we are pushing on both fronts. Okay. So how else could we be breaking the chain? Are vaccines an option? So what is a vaccine? I mean, I, I'm going to pitch this at a level that's um, a standard level, and I'm sure that some people will, will be uh, will be experts already and will not need a lot of um, the the discussion that we're going to be having. But uh, I think it's important that we do have it. So a vaccine is a, a medication that boosts the body's immune system or trains the body's immune system so that it can fight a disease it has not yet come into contact with before. Vaccines are designed to prevent disease. It's a bit of a wordy explanation, but the basic idea being that a vaccine is, is some sort of tool that trains the body to, to see or prepare for an infection that is not yet faced. So these two little books at the bottom left, I'm sure a lot of you will have seen. Uh, all of the parents uh, in South African parents in the room would have, would have seen the other Road to Health booklets. All kids in South Africa are given these booklets, and in that book that there's a little page which is called the EPI, the Expanded Program on Immunization. Um, and in this book, it's got a list of vaccinations that all children in South Africa um, should receive. So from birth with the BCG uh, uh, vaccine against TB, oral polio vaccine, rotavirus vaccine, um, pneumococcal vaccines, etc. Every, every person in South Africa should have received and would have received multiple vaccines over the course of their life. So that includes everyone in this room. Um, and it's also true that the EPI, there's various EPIs in other countries. Uh, so every country in the world has its own program of, on immunization. And, and in most areas where access to healthcare is available, vaccines are one of the core components of a good health system, good primary level, primary healthcare system. And so it's important to, to know that when we hear of a vaccine, the first thing we should know is that many of us have had multiple vaccines um, already by the time that we are adults. And then, of course, there are other vaccines that we could talk of, like the flu vaccine, which many people get um, on an ongoing basis. But wh why do we use vaccines? What's so special about them? What makes them different from any old medication that you could use? So it's estimated that roughly two to three million lives each year are saved by vaccine use. Um, there are a number of, uh, of, of conditions, some of which are on the EPI, such as polio, which are exceedingly rare in the modern world. In fact, polio has been eradicated from South Africa and apart from two countries in the world has been completely eradicated thanks to nothing but vaccines and good primary health care. So what, what, what do we use vaccines for? So we obviously use 
vaccines to prevent people from contracting illnesses that could cause their deaths or cause long-term side effects. That's what everyone is aware of. But vaccines also have a role in preventing outbreaks of communicable diseases. Communicable diseases are just diseases that are infectious that can transmit from one person to another person. They are communicable in that way. They also have a value that is often overlooked in protecting people with weak immune systems from getting sick. So there, and I'll talk about the issue of the idea of herd immunity, we've heard of before um, later on in the presentation, but basically, if there's good community coverage with vaccines, we're able to protect those people in our community who are themselves at risk, even more so than we are protecting ourselves. There's also a role in limiting drug resistance to certain infections um, um, with vaccines by ensuring that people uh, are less reliant on certain antibiotics and, and, and other medications due to immunity that has been acquired from a vaccine. Okay. So how does a vaccine work? And this is probably the uh, most important slide, I think, uh, and it's a very useful basic understanding to have um, in, your, in your pocket uh, when looking at uh, information about vaccines and fake news potentially and to say, is this true, is this not, does this fit um, with what vaccines are? So vaccines work by acting like an infectious agent, acting, mimicking, copying, uh, doing an impression of an infectious agent. And there's various different types. There's inactivated components, killed vaccines, but basically, what, that, what those different words mean is that vaccines are not the infectious agent themselves. So if we were talking about polio, um, uh, they're, not, they're not a live, uh, wild polio virus that is active. Uh, they are either inactivated, so that means that they are uh, made into a form that is less infectious or less able to cause disease, or they are killed. So killed viruses that have uh, been um, sort of sterilized and they're no longer alive. Or, and this is what we'll be talking about in, in this slide, they are components. So they're little bits of, of a virus or a bacteria, little bits of the shell, little bits of um, the proteins of, of, of the virus and not the whole virus. So it's impossible for um, it to cause disease. They're tested for safety. And this is the, the point that is going to probably need a lot of discussion is that vaccines are tested for safety. So they do not cause the disease um, that they are vaccinating against. So that's the, the primary aim of a, of a new uh, vaccine. Is, well, the primary test of the new vaccine, at least in stage one trials, is to make sure that they are not causing um, disease. And they generate an immune response. So what is the immune system. And apologies for those who are very aware of this, but a good analogy for the immune system is if we were to look at the body um, uh, as a person, the immune system are the, are the body's soldiers. They are the parts of the body that look at infections, bugs, uh, viruses coming in through cuts or through your mouth or your nose. Um, into the bloodstream and they identify those, those foreign uh, infections agents and they protect those, the body from, um, from those agents. Okay. 
and they protect the body from future infections in this way. So how does, how does that work? So for example, we take this little orange man in the middle. If he was exposed to coronavirus, we've got the little coronavirus bug in the bottom right of the screen. If he was a, uh, exposed to coronavirus and he had not been exposed to coronavirus before, the bug would get into his body, the virus would use his cells to make more of itself, and he would get quite sick. Obviously, depending on his risk factors or her risk factors, the age um, of the person, do they have diabetes, do they have other comorbidities, etc., and they would get um, ill depending on that. Because they don't have a prior knowledge, the, the immune system is not prepared to fight off um, coronavirus. So where do vaccines come in? So with a vaccine, and the bottom left now, I've, I've made all these funny shapes. If we took components, if we took little bits of the virus, so those little balls around the edge of the virus are called spike proteins, or little bits of the, the, the shell of the virus, and we broke them up, um, and we put them into a, a vaccine, we're now able to inject the vaccine into someone's arm or, or in an oral drop. And the, the person's immune system now sees this. The person's immune system now sees this is something strange. This is a, a, a funny object that I'm not used to. It's not part of the, my, my body. It's probably infection. I need to fight it. And how does the body uh, fight infections? Um, one of the main ways that it fights infections is by producing antibodies. So these are these little Ys. So if the immune cells are the body soldiers, you could think of antibodies as the weapons, the spears, or the missiles of, uh, of, of, of the immune system, of, of those soldiers. Okay. And these antibodies are specific. And that means that they, the, the immune system has recognized these funny, these funny parts that have come into the bloodstream. It's recognized that they are not part of the body, and it's produced antibodies that fit just those, um, uh, those parts. Okay. And antibodies work by, they bind to a virus or, or a bug, and they make it easier for the immune system to get rid of it, basically. They tag the bug. So in this way, the antibodies will then be able to respond when you come into contact with the real coronavirus. Okay. So you see how that works. No real coronavirus is given to the person uh, in a vaccination or no live coronavirus is given to a person in a vaccination, but yet the immune system is now ready to fight coronavirus when it does appear and when a person comes into contact um, with infection in the general population. And the hope then of a good vaccine is that that same person who might have died from coronavirus or might have a very serious illness requiring hospitalization uh, and intubation in, in the ICU because of the risk factors, now is prepared for coming in contact with the virus and is now given an extra, extra uh, preparation and its immune soldiers are ready enough with antibodies in the bloodstream so that the, the bug is not able to replicate and make more of itself in the same way. And the person is then spared from all of those bad effects. Okay. So that's the overview of, of how vaccines work. And that really is true for, for um, uh, most of, of the mechanisms of vaccines. We can talk about some of the specific vaccines that are being considered uh, for COVID and 
how they, uh, they work uh, using that principle. So what's herd immunity? This is also something that's uh, pushed around herd protection, herd immunity, population immunity, all uh, varying terms. So the first thing to note is that vaccination and immunity are often used uh, interchangeably. They no, don't actually mean exactly the same thing. Uh, vaccination is literally just the process of getting vaccinated or getting the jab in your arm. Immunity, um, immunity is the protection against an infection that could come from vaccination, or it could also come from being already having in, been infected with COVID um, yourself. So already having prior exposure to COVID, or thirdly, you just being um, your immune system already being able to prevent infection in the first place. So immunity includes all of those things, it includes vaccination and immunity you would have gotten if you'd you'd been infected before. So in, imagine we have a population of people, these blue people on the top left, and none of them have been immunized. So they haven't been vaccinated and not many of them have had COVID before. And one or two people come into the population who have COVID, uh, maybe on a flight or, or whatever that we saw early in the pandemic. We can see that because nobody else is immunized around them, a very easy it's very easy for them to infect um, a large number of people um, in their vicinity because nobody's protected. Nobody has those antibodies ready to go. Their immune systems are naive, is what is often um, said uh, to the infection. And they're not, it takes such a long time for their body to get up its response that they get infected and they can have serious consequences um, from the disease. But then what if we, get, we have some people being vaccinated? So these people in yellow in the middle picture. Some of these people have been vaccinated. This is maybe five uh, to 10% of people being vaccinated. What do we then see? If some people come into the population who have COVID, you can see that those people who, who are yellow who've been vaccinated are now spared. They've been protected. They didn't get a, a severe in, infection themselves because they, their body has the antibodies to fight off COVID. It's got those little spears that when they come into co contact with COVID will bind to the COVID virus and allow the uh, other immune cells to get rid of it. Okay. But we see the rest of the population is still quite susceptible. It's still quite easy for the rest of the population to, um, to get infected. And that's where the idea of herd immunity comes from. Herd immunity is the, the concept that if most of the population is immunized, or a significant amount of the population is immunized, we're able to protect other people. We're able to protect even those people who have not been vaccinated. So you'll see in, and there's various reasons why some people might not get vaccinated. Obviously, there are a number of people who would choose not to get vaccinated because of um, fear or, or various other concerns. But the main group I'm talking about here are those who don't have access to vaccines. So that's going to be an issue for uh, at least uh, the coming year in South Africa, that there's going to be populations wanting access to vaccines, but who don't have access to vaccines. Or there might be some people who are particularly high risk, vulnerable groups, maybe they're very uh, Ill, acutely ill, or they have other 
contraindications, other reasons that they can't get the vaccine because they're currently sick or there's a risk for them. Um, and because they can't get the vaccine, they still don't want to get COVID. And so if there's population immunity, we can protect those people. So what's the estimate? How many people do we need to, get to vaccinate or to have immunized uh, to get population immunity? Different estimates between 70 to 90% of the population. Some say 66% of the population uh, will need to be vaccinated until we can have herd immunity. And the benefits of herd immunity is that there's no longer uh, this ongoing community spread of COVID. The virus can't get from population to population in the same way because everywhere it goes, it comes into people who are already uh, protected. And that sort of walls it off and eventually is able to control the number of cases we get. And that's the goal of, of, of vaccination is to achieve this. Okay. So what about a COVID vaccine? So uh, I've, I've read this slide in December, but uh, I made a slight adjustment. So there's currently no COVID-19 vaccine available to the general public in SA. So that's hopefully soon to change. So many trials have shown effectiveness. And the government has committed to the rollout of, of vaccines. And we'll talk about the rollout plan briefly, and then some of the other speakers will be able to look at that. So some, there's various different vaccine candidates. So these are just the different companies or the different uh, organizations that have made vaccines. Um, uh, there's something, there's over 200 trials. I think there's uh, around 66 um, ongoing trials um, of different vaccine candidates. Some of the ones you might have heard of are the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, the, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. That's the one um, where there was some testing done at Wits University and University of Cape Town. I actually volunteered as one of the um, trial subjects for that. And basically what they would do, you would, you would get a vaccine, you would get an injection, which you did not know if it was a vaccine or a placebo, uh, salt water injection, and then over time, they would wa watch um, how many people got sick to see if there was uh, effectiveness. Okay. And then there's other vaccines. I've, I've said Sputnik vaccine. There's many, many more that I won't uh, list here uh, now. Um, and some of these vaccines have shown really high effectiveness. The Pfizer vaccine and Moderna vaccine both have shown nearly 95% effectiveness. That means that nearly 95% of people who got the vaccine did not get COVID or, or would, would not get COVID uh, as opposed to those who did not get the vaccine. The Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine showed uh, high effectiveness, moderate um, high effectiveness depending on, on the dose, but there's also quite a strong effectiveness and they have released their data also. Okay. So, I mean, perhaps in, in question time, if, if people want to go into more of the details of the different vaccines and how they work, um, the, the basic principle stays the same that I've said. You're exposing the body to little bits of the virus or little bits of something that looks like the virus so that the body is able to recognize those parts, those bits of the virus wall, the bits of the spike protein, and is ready and it takes a photo of it and it makes sure it has antibodies ready for, for when it comes into contact or if it comes into contact with the real thing. And it's got that stored away in its library um, and ready to go. Okay. 
but we can talk about if, if people want or have questions about the difference like uh, mRNA vaccines, et cetera, we can talk about that. Okay. So vaccine rollout, um, uh, what, what is, what's going to happen? This is something that we uh, will be discussing, discussing, I think, a little bit more in depth um, with some of the other, the other speakers. But basically, South Africa is committed to a three-phase approach uh, to try and vaccinate a huge number of the population. They've divided groups into uh, three groups based on um, uh, the, the priority. Okay. And you can, it's, it's quite clear to follow why certain groups have, have been phased in that way. Um, but there's obviously to be some debates about the specifics of, of who is included in, in which group. So the first group being healthcare workers, frontline healthcare workers, with a target population of 1.25 million people. So 1.25 million is, is more than the number of doctors and nurses uh, in the country. So it is to include, at least in, 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 in government statements, the, um, the various other support, supporting staff um, employed in essential frontline healthcare work. So from laboratories to uh, security staff, cleaning staff, et cetera, to ensure, and the reason this is, this is done is obviously to ensure that um, these people who have high risk, they're exposed to COVID a lot, are able to continue um, their work and minimize the risk for them. And also it supports the whole system uh, in coping with um, the burden of COVID from the rest of the population. The phase two group, has a list of essential workers, uh, persons in congregate settings. So that means people in, in tightly packed um, or, or um, sort of living places, everything from old age homes, etc. Persons living, persons aged over 60. So these are very high risk people. Remember, we talked about some people being at higher risk than others. And then um, persons over 18 years with comorbidities. So comorbidities are those things like diabetes, uh, heart problems, et cetera, that make someone at higher risk of having a more severe infection. And then the phase three group is the target population of, it's only 22.5 million listed here, and that's based on the number of vaccines that the government says it's able to, to procure. That is the rest of the general population. Okay. So, Really, like the main push behind why we had having this workshop, and we will have further workshops um, with other groups, is around the fears that are going around. And I'm sure everyone from has has seen this in either their WhatsApp groups or on Facebook or in messages from family and friends or just around the um, the table um, that there are various fears, fake news, etc., going around around vaccines. Okay. So a recent uh, Ipsos survey, I just want to thank uh, uh, Peter Benjamin. I pulled this from his recent article today uh, in mid-December showed 47% of South Africans said they would refuse inoculation against the coronavirus. So that means 47% of people said that they would not be getting uh, the coronavirus vaccine and for various reasons, reasons from uh, uh, various uh, issues of, of, of of fake news, of, of fear of, of what's in the, in the vaccine, um, to more simple issues of worried about side effects or not liking needles, uh, et cetera, or not thinking that it's necessary for them to get vaccinated because they're gonna be fine with COVID. So 
That's a huge number of people. And obviously, if 47% of the country uh, is true to this um, and does not get vaccinated, we will not be able to achieve the herd immunity that we so desire, um, which would mean an ongoing um, spread of coronavirus. Um, so while there has not yet been a single vaccination in South Africa, there's more than 30.5 million doses of vaccines have been given across uh, the world so far. It's according, according to Bloomberg, and it's been considered one of the greatest logistical challenges ever undertaken. And for South Africa, South Africa, it will be similarly so to be able to vaccinate a good proportion of our nearly 60 million people. Okay. And then where are these fears coming from? So the anti-vaccine movement is a billion dollar industry, and it's important to point that out. Um, the WHO differentiates between misinformation and disinformation. Misinformation being just really well-natured, good, uh, good intended, uh, good intentions, um, uh, questioning, but with mis misinformed um, information. So people who are generally trying to understand um, vaccines and their usefulness, um, but have, have, don't have the available information at hand, versus disinformation, which is disinformation is intentional. Disinformation is the intentional spreading of false or fake news for benefits. And we can talk about where some of this might be coming from. And this is what we've, we're seeing, a mix of this in, in South Africa. At some of our community workshops uh, with PHM, these are a list of some of the uh, myths that we've picked up, just asking people to share what they've heard, whether they, they believe it or not. Everything from COVID-19 is not real to uh, COVID is the same as HIV to COVID coming from refugees and migrants. COVID comes from 5G mobile phone networks. It's a conspiracy of the government to control people. It's Chinese bioterrorism against the world, pharma companies. Bill Gates is obviously a repeating one that's somehow manipulating COVID. He's somehow doing something with vaccines to control people. Uh, vaccines have implants to track you. Unfortunately, we, we saw the Chief Justice last year make a statement about um, uh, satanic symbols being in the vaccine, uh, which he slightly walked back, uh, although not entirely retracted. Um, and I'm sure that that has had, had a big impact on, on communities and their, their concerns and fears about um, COVID vaccines. Uh, that there are other treatments um, available and, and vaccines aren't necessary, that the, the World Health Organization is doing this for profit, um, and that the tests for COVID actually spread COVID, and, the, and that basically that there's a lot of lie, lying going on. These are, the, these are the myths that we've picked up just in our small number of workshops um, from community health workers and all that. So I wanted to just cover some a brief three or four of, of the, the myths, but obviously if there are specific questions and specific myths, we need to counter them with specific uh, responses. So obviously a lot of this comes from a place of not understanding, but a place of concern and a place of generally wanting to know um, what's true. And so I think that it's important that when we deal with uh, myths or fake news like this, that we're not, um, we're not didactic, we're not, um, we're not coming across as 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 dismissive, uh, and we really discuss with people 
what their concerns are and where those concerns are coming from. Okay. I don't think that there's any value. So the, the quotes from previous, the above is public health moves at the speed of trust. I don't think that there's any value in uh, simply shouting down the naysayers without making sure that we are pushing the, the correct information and edu educating people. And that's where I think that C19 has a great role to play. Um, so we don't know what's in the vaccine. So obviously the South African uh, Healthcare Products Reg Regulatory Authority has to approve all the vaccines before they are used um, in, in South Africa. And the, the vaccines that we've mentioned, for example, the uh, Oxford vaccine was tested on, on several thousand South Africans, but also over 40,000 people in the United Kingdom uh, first. Um, and these, the, these companies have to declare what is in their vaccines. And various tests are done to make sure that that is the case, that we do know exactly what is in uh, vaccines. They do not contain microchips or any form of, of tracking device. And as, as said, by the Department of Health, SAPRA would not approve it uh, if, if they did. So there's no, there's no microchip or tracking device of any kind. I think where this, this initially came from, I mean, obviously it came from uh, people trying to push this, but also there was this issue of, um, of tracking uh, who has had a vaccine. So that's a different issue entirely. So even um, tracking who has had a vaccine is more so that we know how many vaccines have been given out. We know who is protected. For example, if I wanted to travel to certain countries, I would have to have a yellow fever vaccine and I have a little yellow fever card. It looks like a little um, uh, 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter yellow card that shows I can prove to the government I'm not bringing yellow fever into your country. That's, that is uh, one of the components of, of vaccine tracking. 5G, so to confirm, it's not... There's no tracking. The vaccine itself is not in any way involved in, in microchipping or telling people, uh, telling the government or telling Bill Gates where you are. That is simply uh, um, not true. Okay. 5G networks do not spread COVID. So there was obviously a lot of um, this spreading in the early uh, parts of last year, this myth that. 5G networks going up at the same time, COVID is appearing, therefore they must be uh, linked. It's again, COVID and viruses in general, bacteria can't travel on radio waves um, through phone networks. Um, but it's unfortunately something that we keep hearing and I'm sure that many of you um, keep hearing in, in different groups and it's something that we should just point out as, uh, as is not true. The vaccines will alter your DNA. So this is the only time I'm going to be specific about one of the, the, the vaccines and how they work. So when we go back to uh, the different vaccine types, you see the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine. There's various reasons why they might not be widely rolled out in South Africa because of needing really intense um, refrigeration. But they are what's called mRNA vaccines. So that's very, I mean, sounds very technical, but basically... RNA, DNA, everyone knows what DNA, it contains the instructions for your body. It's in every cell. It tells your, your cells how to develop into making a human, basically. RNA is a little messenger that carries the instruction from your DNA to, your, to, the, to making proteins, to making the building blocks of your body. Okay. 
there's no DNA, human DNA, viral DNA, or other in any of the, uh, the mRNA uh, vaccines. The way they work is they're simply a bit of instruction for making one of those proteins. So those proteins that I, that I showed here in the bottom left, these little bits of virus that, that we would call proteins or spike proteins, Basically, the vaccine just gives the body an instruction to make some of them, to make some of these proteins. It does not make any virus. There is no virus in the vaccine itself. It is not possible for um, uh, the vaccine to, to cause COVID infection. All it is doing is making those little broken bits of virus so that your immune system can be ready for when it sees the whole thing, when it sees COVID, the real COVID virus. Okay. So I put this in, uh, interestingly, um, one of the phrases is that vaccines are not a magic bullet. We had an article written directed at the C19 coalition, which tried to uh, point that out. Um, but C19 is going to be with us for months and years to come. Um, and a lot of that is because of the barriers to access, both of care and of vaccines. And uh, the other speakers will be speaking about that now. And because of that, we need to keep educating people on those first principles that I talked about, the hand washing, social distancing, wearing a mask, staying home if you are sick, um, and following uh, medical advice. So, I mean, and then also we need to be pushing back against the fear, stigma, and fake news about how vaccines work so that if and when they are available, and we need to be pushing for them to be available, um, they are available. People are taking them up and using them. One, one of my greatest fears is that they will be, uh, long after vaccines are widely available, they will continue to be healthcare workers who are dying because they have chosen not to be vaccinated uh, solely because of uh, stigma or fake news around the vaccine. Okay. And then we need to be challenging any myths that exist. So, Myths just about COVID itself, how it works, what are the symptoms, how you can prevent it, those sort of more basic um, misinformation, but also that disinformation that we've talked about. Where is the information coming from? Are there other sources um, that are saying the same thing? Um, and can we can we trust this? Um, so that's that's really the end of my my side of the presentation. I'm going to hand over then to uh, Leslie London and Fatima Hassan for presentation on uh, on vaccine access and equity. Thanks, James. Uh, you have painted a quite comprehensive picture on what is vaccine and the virus and so forth. Right now, I'm going to invite Comrade Leslie to go uh, and present to us. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks so much. I'm going to um, talk mainly about the questions of intellectual property and the barriers to equitable access. In other words, what would stop us from uh, having the vaccine and other health technologies shared in a fair and um, equitable way. This is a graph that you saw earlier from James, the, the first first wave in um, May, August, and now we're like deep in our second wave. And this is uh, quite interesting because, you know, during the first wave, if you were able to access, if you were in the private sector, you were able to access testing for uh, COVID much easier about five and a half times much easier. 
And there's a problem, a, a story linked to that, but it seems like even in the second wave, it's gotten worse. So in the, more tests are being done per person in the private sector than are in the public sector. It's now six and a half to one. So, so we have a problem of inequity in how people have access to resources they need for COVID. You could talk about access to water, access to sanitizer, and the measures to address COVID also impact on us in different ways, in gendered ways. So we've seen uh, gender-based violence uh, rise, the burden of domestic care falls to women during COVID, uh, access to services have been curtailed uh, in healthcare, most uh, staff working in healthcare are women, uh, and we've also seen the displacement of LGBTI issues from the policy agenda because of COVID. So there have been many ways in which um, inequity has been imposed. So let's just focus on the vaccines, and to do that we can't really... Um, talk about that without talking about patents and intellectual property. So let's just uh, understand why it's important. So a patent is something the government will give to somebody who invents something and it gives them the exclusive right to stop others from making or using or setting something they have invented. That's what a patent is. Most countries, South Africa included, will give a patent for about 20 years. It's a set period after which the patent expires and anybody can take your idea and then develop it. But it's really for a product or a process that provides a new way of doing something or offers a new technical solution. It's not meant to be for like slightly changing the thing to make it look like it's new and then claiming it's new and then getting another 20 years patent, which is what drug companies do. They call it evergreening. So they change a medicine only slightly, say it's a new thing, a new, new uh, method, and they get a patent uh, when it's not really. Intellectual property is basically when you apply your mind or intellect to develop something new or original. Uh, and registering your IP is meant to give you an incentive to create new ideas or products or processes. And a patent is only one form of IP. There are other forms of IP like copyright or trademarks, etc. And it's, it's codified in law. So we have a, a, a patent laws in South Africa at the moment. Okay, anybody know what this is? It's a motor car, and it's a special motor car. It's an electric car. It's a Tesla. So there was a, a South African entrepreneur. I, I think he was a bright guy. I don't know. But he invented an electric car. Only runs on electricity, no petrol. And the invention would have been patented. It would have been copyrighted because now he can sell this car, a very expensive car, and make back the, 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 his investment in the research and development. And to be honest, I don't have a problem because this is a private good. Somebody wants to buy a private good, they can pay for it. But a car is not a medicine or a vaccine. A medicine and a vaccine is a public good. And the idea that somebody could patent a public good and then charge what they like for it uh, is the problem. It's, it doesn't ring true morally and it doesn't <clears throat> work for the healthcare system. So um, commodities that are commercial uh, can be subject to patents, but things which are life-saving shouldn't be part of <clears throat> patents. So here's an example. Tobeka Daki was um, an activist for Medicine Sans Frontier Access Campaign. She was a single mother who uh, had breast cancer in 2013. She had a type of breast cancer that was treated by a particular drug. It was an unusual breast cancer. It was called trastuzumab, which the World Health Organization recommended for her kind of cancer. And in countries of the north, everyone who, every woman who has that cancer gets that drug as standard of care. 
But in Africa, it costs about $35,000 per year for one patient. So we're talking like hundreds of thousands of rands. She obviously couldn't afford it. She tried to get access to the drug. Uh, the public health system couldn't, couldn't um, provide it. She never got the drug. Her cancer recurred and she died in 2016. So her story is tragic, but it's reflective of many of the problems of intellectual property. Uh, and that's why we say a patent is bad for health. When drug companies hold patents, they have a monopoly over the medicine or the vaccine, and no other company can make it without their permission, even if there's a health emergency. And when they have a monopoly, they keep the prices high. They can do it, and they do do it. When there's competition, however, prices do come down. So here's an example in South Africa of why intellectual property was a problem during COVID. Um, our initial focus uh, in the epidemic was to basically do mass testing and then identify who was COVID positive and get them into um, isolation. Uh, and we had these devices called Gene Experts, uh, which are basically technologies that help you do lots of tests that rely on um, uh, recombinant DNA testing. Uh, we use it for TB mainly, and that's why we bought it, and we bought a lot of them. Uh, so everyone said, no, 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 we all prepared for, for COVID because we had all these gene expert devices that can do lots of tests. There was another one by Roche. But the problem was they need these cartridges, and the cartridges were used up because countries in the north, particularly the U.S., basically bought up all the supply of the cartridges for the gene expert. So the laboratories which had the, the machine, they couldn't do the tests because there were no cartridges to run the tests. And they couldn't devise their own cartridges because the contents, what was in that, those cartridges, were intellectually protected by a patent. So nobody knew they couldn't make their own reagents to do the tests. So as a result, we had tests that were done and we waited like a week or two weeks, by which time the test result was useless, was meaningless. Uh, the NHLS could have made their own kit cartridges, but their composition was protected by a patent. So in that way, that's another example of how people died unnecessarily in South Africa because they were diagnosed late, uh, they infected other people who went on to get severe disease, and patents were responsible for killing people. So what did we learn from HIV? Well, of course we learned from HIV that without strong civil society action, you don't make advances in public health in many areas. But we also succeeded in bringing down the costs of medicines through mobilization, advocacy, and legal channels, challenges. If you look at this graph, it's a famous graph. It shows that the initial prices of uh, antiretrovirals were you know, more than $10,000 per year per patient. Uh, and when the um, Brazilian and Indian and other pharmaceuticals were able to compete, the prices came right down both uh, the, the generics and the brand drugs. So by undoing the control of the patents, we were able to reduce the costs of medicines. The drug companies have never told us actually what it cost them to develop those medicines, but that's why they said they were so expensive initially. But as soon as you had competition, suddenly they could bring the prices down. So we know the arguments around patents are often uh, covered in um, a lot of rhetoric and a lot of ideology. So what are the, what's going on globally to promote access to the vaccine? You would have heard something called COVAX. So the World Health Organization, along with um, other intergovernmental organizations and private funders, put together this um, 
COVID accelerator and the vaccine arm of the COVID accelerator is called COVAX. And under COVAX, you basically, as a country, you basically put down money to pre-purchase a vaccine. So even before the vaccines are available or confirmed as effective, countries were putting down money under COVAX. And low-income countries get the vaccine for free. Middle-income countries such as South Africa have to purchase and we have to purchase at market price. And money was pumped into COVAX but it didn't change the intellectual property arrangement. So big, the pharmaceutical companies still maintained the patents, which meant they could decide how much it was going to be sold for. Also, COVAX wasn't going to supply enough doses for everyone. There was this notion that, uh, okay, if you give 20% of people in the country, 20% of the population get vaccinated through COVAX, that'll do it. But then countries would have to to decide who gets the vaccine first, should it be the elderly, those with diseases, health workers, as James has said, and 20% is a laughable amount, as you'll see for, for South Africa. And then, of course, we had vaccine nationalism. So the Pfizer vaccine, which came out early, was already reserved. Uh, two, four, uh, 80% of it was already reserved because northern countries had already bought it up even before it was out. So, so it wouldn't be available to low-income countries, let alone middle-income countries. So the weakness of COVAX is that it relies on the market. It doesn't do anything about the problems of the market or patents. Um, there's no fixed pricing. So it's not like WHO is committing pharmaceuticals to say, okay, we'll provide a, a vaccine for X price. It won't stop the privatizing of intellectual property. And it doesn't prevent one country from cutting a deal, as we've seen. And there's no guarantee you get the most suitable vaccine. So there's one vaccine that is um, the Moderna vaccine. It's very effective, but it requires refrigeration at minus 80, freezing at minus 80, although they're sort of fiddling with it now to change that. But very few countries can cope with a vaccine you have to have in a freezer at minus 80. I mean, a freezer usually is minus 20, and a minus 80 vaccine, uh, freezer is something unusual. So we'd have to spend a huge amount of money on freezers to use that vaccine. So it's not always the case that what you get is actually uh, usable or effective. Uh, and Minister Mbaweni in the first tranche for COVAX allocated half a billion with at least uh, 4.5 billion more needed. There is another uh, global tool, and that's the COVID-19 technology access pool that was set up. Uh, and it's a international um, WHO-sponsored, basically a repository of intellectual property for technology on COVID that is open access. It's supported by 34 low middle income countries, but surprise, surprise, there's no support from the UK, the USA, private pharmaceuticals say this pool is nonsense and dangerous. And to date, not one pharmaceutical company has donated its intellectual property to this pool. So it relies on voluntarism and voluntarism doesn't work. <clears throat> so what's an alternative? South Africa and India last year proposed a waiver of intellectual property to the World Trade Organization. It was a waiver which said that during the COVID epidemic, we will suspend all IP for COVID-19 related technologies. We'll do it for the duration of the epidemic or until there's a vaccine that can comprehensively cover the population or the majority of the global population is immune. And it's only for COVID-19 related technology and it's not mandatory for countries so it's only if countries need to to implement a, a wave of IP 
And what it would enable would be technology transfer for local production. So if South Africa decided to produce vaccines for Africa or Southern Africa, uh, the waiver would be very uh, handy because then we wouldn't be subject to the U.S. beating us up over appropriating Aspen or uh, AstraZeneca's uh, intellectual property, for example. The waiver was co-supported by a number of developing countries and even WHO has supported it now. Of course, it's been opposed by a number of countries, uh, usually with pharmaceutical interests or those that don't want to annoy the U.S. So essentially, we have a problem where the global governance of health technology is in the hands of big pharma, big Bill Gates, big Gavi, and big countries with small country partners. And the problem is COVAX, well, on its own, it would be okay, but it's insufficient and it cements the patent control of the vaccine market. It doesn't do anything about undoing the patents problem. And as Third World Network have said, the pharmaceutical companies are now the heroes of combating COVID because they produce these vaccines. But they produce the vaccines in ways that really make access to the people who really need it really difficult. So why are they the heroes? CTAP is completely ignored and marginalized. And if we had a WTO waiver, it would lower costs, it would remove regulatory obstacles and potentially enable local production. So in South Africa, we've been hosting vaccine trials. James mentioned that he's a participant. We have local production capacity in both the public and the private sector. Aspen Pharmaceuticals is a private company who have been licensed by Johnson & Johnson to finish uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. But even though they'll be doing that in large bulk, we don't even know if those vaccines will be used locally. Um, it's unclear. In December, uh, our president announced a payment to COVAX uh, that was going to cover 10% of the population. Um, we're not clear that's actually happened. Uh, then in January, we were told uh, 1.5 million doses from the Serum Institute of India, which is the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine, was going to come here. And then this week, the president announced another 20 million doses were purchased. So suddenly, there's a lot of activity on uh, vaccine access. SAPRO, which is the South African agency that registers health technologies, received a registration application for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in December and has said that it will license other vaccines by comparability. So if the European or American uh, vaccine or health agencies license those vaccines, South Africa will accept that as um, equivalent. So what are the, some of the problems, though? <clears throat> uh, if we go through COVAX, we're not actually sure which vaccine we're going to get. Uh, you basically pay up front. It's, it's a weird system. You pay up front, you don't really know what you're going to get. It's not clear we missed the deposit deadline, although apparently we didn't. Not, a lot of lack of transparency. In South Africa, it's not compulsory to be vaccinated, or not yet anyway. Um, we don't know what, what will happen if it reaches that point. Uh, also, you're supposed to give informed consent, and we know that it's meant to be the case, but it probably doesn't happen in practice. If something goes wrong with the vaccine, and in a very small number of people, you will have vaccine reactions, very small number. There's no specific compensation system, and the worst thing about it is that it will feed um, people's beliefs that vaccines are dangerous. There's no discussion about gender or intersectionality risks related to vaccination or access. 
populations who are vulnerable due to social circumstances. Uh, in, in the discussions I've seen happening, the, those are really at the back of the queue. It's not clear if the private sector can sequester part of the national allocation. The Department of Health has said it is going to be the vehicle for, for um, uh, accessing, purchasing the vaccine. But uh, a lot of the private sector medical schemes are asking now about how they can get it. And if they get it, are they going to follow the national protocol for who's uh, eligible or who's prioritized? Of course, as you've heard from James, vaccine misinformation is rife. This is the plan that you saw from uh, James. Phase one is healthcare workers, phase two, essential workers, uh, people in congregate settings, older people, comorbidities, and phase three is the rest. We're currently relying on the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is two doses, four weeks apart, and doesn't need super, super, super cold storage. There are many unresolved issues. So, for instance, we don't know if pregnant women and children should be vaccinated. We're waiting on guidance for that. We have had more than a million cases in South Africa, and should the people who've survived COVID be vaccinated? We're still not sure. Uh, everyone will need a vaccination card. How are we going to make sure that's going to happen? You know, in the discussion around the NHI, the NHI is going to depend on an NHI card, but that was one of the questions we had. Well, how will everyone be able to get an NHI card in the current system? Uh, do we have an information system that's secure and reliable? Uh, will the private sector be able to get in there first ahead of everyone else? It's unclear. Uh, do we have enough human resources to deliver the vaccinations? That's not clear. And where will people get their vaccination? And of course, vaccine denialism is an issue. But the basic, the bottom line is that access to vaccines for COVID is a human right. So we have a convention on economic, social and cultural rights, which South Africa ratified surprisingly late in 2013, I think. And in that, it talks about the right to the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health. And to do that, countries, states must take steps to prevent, treat, and control epidemic and other diseases. And our constitution says everyone has a right of access to health care, and the state must take reasonable legislative and other measures. So accessing a vaccine is not um, a privilege. It's not something nice. It's not something uh, you know, for the health minister to worry about. It's actually people's right to be healthy, to get as healthy as they can, and we should frame it in that way. I want to end with this just to say that, you know, things in the last month have totally, totally changed. You know, we had no idea of vaccines, vaccine results went out, suddenly everything is vaccine. And we focused entirely on how many vaccines we're going to get and where from and for who and who's going to get it. Um, we've completely lost the plot on building local capacity or technology transfer or changing the system. Okay, we're just working within the system to make sure we get enough vaccines so that people can, and whose lives can be saved. And I understand that, but we also need to think about changing that system. Secondly, we've completely forgotten about our comrades in the rest of Africa. Uh, Zimbabwe and other countries, the epidemic is vicious. And they don't have the capacity to purchase vaccines the way we do. And we've completely like, left that behind. Um, so South Africa is just as vaccine nationalist as other countries because we are buying what we need for our people, but there are countries that will not be able to buy and we can see that COVAX is not going to deliver that. 
And lastly, our own intellectual property legislation in this country is still handing out patents to pharma companies for absolutely no reason. There was a study which showed that 80% of the patents that were given to the pharmaceutical, given out by the current um, uh, patent system, were, were just never checked. They, they were only checked to see if the form was filled out properly. So they weren't examined to see whether they really created intellectual property that was new. And that's why the Fix the Patent Laws campaign is so important. So I've put up just in closing two um, URLs. One is the Fix the Patent Laws campaign, and the other is the PHM Equitable Access to Health Technologies for COVID URL. And there's lots more information in that. Thanks. Thank you, Comrade Leslie. Uh, next, and Fatima Hassan is a social justice activist and a lawyer who fought for the rights of South Africans during the HIV pandemic. We are so glad, glad that we still have you in the struggle for health. And now we are fighting for, for the same uh, struggle under to your presentation. Thank you. Thanks, Leslie, and thanks, James, and everybody. So uh, I think that James and Leslie has, have really covered uh, everything. So I'm just going to try and give some reflections on, on what they've said. Um, the first is I think I just want to kind of recognize all the healthcare workers and frontline workers who really have been dealing with the disproportionate impact of this crisis. And we, we want to say thank you and show our gratitude and, and recognize your work. Um, there's two issues why we think this crisis could be a lever for broader healthcare reform. And I think our concern, therefore, then can't just be rooted in trying to figure out many of the access and IP, uh, you know, limitations and issues around COVID. It, uh, COVID has had a significant interruption of our HIV and TB services, as well as uh, sexual reproductive health services. So it's going to take us another three to four years, according to people on the ground who normally provide these kind of services, to actually get back to the levels that we had in early 2020. So that's one reason. And the second is that because this crisis is unprecedented and because we want to regard a vaccine or diagnostics or other therapeutics as a public good, COVID for us really is the lever by which we can actually try and, uh, you know, um, advocate for more reforms around the way we deal with medicine pricing and the way we deal with health access. So it's not just about trying to get vaccines, and it's not just about COVID, it, it's going to have a massive impact for, for how we go forward. And this is why um, one of the issues that we're really concerned about is that if in this pandemic, in this unprecedented crisis, our government does not want to or refuses to take even more decisive state action against pharmaceutical companies, then it's not likely to do that for any other disease going forward. So the first thing I think you should know, uh, and so I'm just kind of responding to, to Leslie's presentation as well, is that we currently have three different structures, which as civil society, we need to watch very closely and provide oversight of. There's something called the VAT, the Vaccine Acquisition Task Team. Uh, which is made up of mostly private sector people and government, and we don't think has sufficient uh, inclusion of, of the voices of, of people that are, for example, in this group, and of healthcare workers and frontline workers, including labor formations. Then there's something that is being mooted called the NVCC, the National Vaccine Coordination Committee, 
And there's some guidelines for how they actually want to structure that, which will deal with the actual vaccine rollout in our country. Uh, but we don't know all the names as yet. Uh, we, there's some indication of who the chair will be. And alongside that, there's also the Ministerial Advisory Committee on Vaccines, which, as you know from uh, the minister's presentation to the nation uh, last Sunday, is, is again made up of uh, multiple um, role players, including somebody from the National Treasury and then obviously the DDG and, and, and some other uh, experts and advisors. And as you all know, uh, one of the lightning rods, I think, in this response to COVID has been the chair of that committee and other parts of, of the country. They also calling for the entire committee to be disbanded. But all three are operating sort of alongside the National Command Council alongside the Disaster Management Center, COCTA, and the Department of Health, so, and alongside the presidency. So the, there's many centers of power. Um, we've heard, and, and please don't quote me on this, but, and, and uh, it's from a source and it's not verified, but um, that Pfizer has lodged their dossier with SAPA. So there could be some movement there around um, approval for them. We know that AstraZeneca is on fast track approval and the indications are that Johnson & Johnson and Peter and them can speak to this, you know, with, with more expertise than me. But apparently that uh, that will is likely to uh, be submitted in the next few days. So, so the issue, I think, for public health advocates as well, relating to the four trials that are being conducted in South Africa, there's a fourth one, Novavax, which, which we still don't know, uh, you know, how, uh, whether that, uh, that is likely to be something that we may use, is that the trials need to be unblinded if it's already proven, a particular vaccine is proven to be safe and effective. So all the people who've been volunteering for trials and a lot of community people have, they may have got the placebo. So as an immediate thing, they need to get access. And the second is that going forward, so clearly uh, whether it was the ethics committee, whether it was the different uh, you know, mechanism that approved clinical trials in South Africa or the clinicians or the researchers, if you're gonna do any more clinical trials on vaccines, we have to have a guarantee about post-trial access. Um, Leslie's talked about the different mechanism by which you can access vaccines. We now know, according to the president's briefing to, to the country, uh, well, it's more like a monologue because there's no Q&A, right? And, he, and he's actually not being accountable uh, in this particular space. And that is a concern. And we really have to ask the presidency to start taking briefings and, and Q&As. Uh, so there's COVAX, which I sent the link in the chat group. There's major limitations with that. Um, McKinsey is purportedly behind actually advising that particular, that setup and that design. And a lot of the indications from many of our activists and alliance partners in other parts of the world is that it's likely to fail for multiple reasons. Uh, the MAC advisory also says that COVAX is only likely to give us uh, for our population, about 3% of supplies that we need. So it's for all low-income and middle-income countries up to 20%. But if you start disaggregating that, that potentially could only mean 3% for us. Um, and then obviously we're negotiating through bilaterals. And then we heard for the first time from the president, we're also negotiating access through something called AVAT, which is the African Vaccine Acquisition Task Team. And I think we, we really need some civil society uh, vigilance throughout Africa on that particular mechanism. What we don't know as yet fully, there's a lot of speculation and a lot of media reports, and some of them are not totally factual or correct because the Minister of Finance has actually not given us a proper briefing, is that we don't really know the true um, layers of the financing model for 
every single person to get access to a vaccine, whoever wants it, and obviously it's not mandatory, but also the administration of it, the setting up of the different uh, centers, mobile clinics, uh, you know, all of the stuff that was presented in that Sunday presentation, and then of course, logistics and storage. And so the thing that does concern me on that is, you know, the first person to put their hand up around storage facilities is Discam and Clicks. And Discam normally provides the cold storage facilities for Aspen. And so we'll come back to the Aspen J&J &J issue. But as you all know, uh, Discam was also found guilty of pandemic uh, price gouging in a, in a pandemic on the face mask, right? So when, when Leslie talked about the different mechanisms by which you potentially could secure access, the other issue that we're dealing with, uh, with the support of activists, you know, in, in the different parts of the world is that each mechanism to actually access vaccines has a different price. And we now know that because there's never, there's been no pricing transparency. We're being told it's a low profit or a no profit offer, uh, but substantial amounts of public investment has actually gone into many of these uh, vaccine research uh, projects on an accelerated basis. I mean, you know, there's over 200 different potentially vaccine uh, products. Um, and Public Citizen has done some good work around explaining where which governments have put in uh, investments and funding into that research and which philanthropists as well and where those trials actually benefit from research that was done previously by HIV researchers and Ebola researchers. So we've got potentially four different prices. Today Tony Fauci has said that yes uh, the US must actually join CTAP um, and also that CTAP should be should now step in and actually try and find an urgent solution to the global uh, supply shortages, not just obviously for South Africa, but for the rest of the global South. So there's four potential areas, four potential prices. We don't, we're none the wiser about any of the prices. We don't know how our government is verifying, <clears throat> sorry, the prices that are on offer because there's no transparency. Uh, and we also don't know the financing model, but because we're in a situation of need, of death, of dying, of infections, of a health system collapsing, uh, even though we're in a pandemic, it's very likely that our government will just pay whatever they need to pay because there's a lot of public pressure on them to get the vaccines quite urgently, which is a valid concern. And also because they they basically were just caught napping, right? So what do we know in terms of actually getting supplies? Um, like, yeah, we, we have press statements and, and presentations. 1.5 million potentially from Serum. Today, News24 reported about some limitations around what Serum can do and what Serum can't do. We've just verified that today. And so there's definitely a sub-agreement that's been signed with, with Oxford University to AstraZeneca and AstraZeneca to Serum. So AstraZeneca has actually determined which market Serums can provide to and at what prices. So, you know, there needs to be some nuance around uh, where the barriers to the global supply chains are for low and middle income countries in relation to AstraZeneca and Serum. And then the president said there's 20 million dosages from where we don't know. Uh, Leslie has talked about that. Um, what is, I think, an, an area that we need to focus on in relation to this potential 20 million supplies, uh, because we're hearing that that Johnson & Johnson could be submitting that, you know, the, the final set of data or papers in the next few days. And, and many people think that could be a game changer 
game changer. It could be the J&J, we're not sure. We're also not sure why Aspen signed an agreement and they definitely only signed for fill and finish, uh, even though the media is sometimes reporting it as a full manufacturer. It's not a full manufacturing license. This has been confirmed. They're hyping the language. You all know the Aspen relationship uh, with, with the ANC and with government. They're on the Solidarity Fund. They're on Business South Africa. They're on and almost every kind of mechanism um, in relation to not just COVID, but TB, HIV, malaria. Um, but what we do know is that they've signed this agreement to fill and finish in PE, but all the dosages would be for exports. And that's why I think there's some indication now that both Aspen and BioVac are setting up worker forums as well, uh, because that would actually be like quite an injustice if, if, if that was to happen. The BioVac thing, and maybe Leslie can come in here, big question mark. Many uh, A few months ago, a big deal was made about the fact that BioVac was actually selected by COVAX to make some of its vaccine. We don't know, nine, nine companies have joined COVAX, not all of them, so we don't know which vaccine, for who, for what, is it only for exports, is it for supplies for Africa? Um, there's no information and, and my sources say that government also hasn't even seen this agreement and they've been um, excluded from those negotiations. Leslie's talked about the pressure we need to put on Parliament to really quickly pass those IP laws. If we don't pass those IP laws now in COVID, in this pandemic, then the EFI forum, forums, the DAs, the solidarities, all of the people who want to defend patent monopolies after COVID will make sure that it never passes. So we may not be able to use the benefit of those laws for COVID, but definitely we need it for what's going to happen two years down the line, three years down the line, and the next pandemic and the next epidemic. Um, that also includes an element of pre-grant opposition. So we don't know at the moment, and we really need to put pressure on SIPSI and Ibrahim Patel and DTIC, how many patents have they granted in the last few months, to which companies, why, on what basis. In the middle of a pandemic, there was a call early on that you shouldn't grant patents uh, in the pandemic. That then links to um, the W2O waiver. It's sure, sorry, it's very hard to concentrate. There's a lot of chat messaging traffic going on. Um, the WTO waiver is also being opposed by Brazil, which is our BRICS partner, which is interesting, even though they're rolling out like massive immunization programs, Canada, um, as well as Australia. Um, it doesn't seem like those negotiations are going to be finalized shortly. The last we heard, they're meeting again in Feb, then they may be meeting in March. So by the time they actually get some kind of resolution to this, it could be quite late for the ability of countries in the global south to ramp up uh, what Leslie talked about, which was basically our own manufacturing capacity and our own ability to set up companies that could manufacture some of the technologies and some of the more easier vaccine technologies. Um, and then just the, 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 the final uh, two points that I wanted to make is that obviously patents have a negative impact on the entire response to the pandemic. And it has a very pernicious impact on access in, in three ways. One is obviously pricing. Uh, and, and the fact that there's no transparency makes it worse. The second is on licensing. So if AstraZeneca decides that they only want to give serum a contract, that is why you will have scarcity. That is why you will have limited supplies. Uh, if AstraZeneca said everybody anywhere in the world can take the technology and make it if you have the capacity, then you would be dealing with a very different set of situations, uh, a, a very different set of uh, uh, 
yeah, a very different situation than we are in right now. And so the licensing and the IP is directly linked to the manufacturing capacity. And there's a lot of myths about the fact that the third world or what they regard as the fact that the third world can't actually manufacture, and that's not necessarily true. And certainly in South Africa, there's some capability with BioVac and with Aspen, and had the technology been shared much sooner, or there'd be a commitment that they wouldn't oppose IP um, you know, waivers, that they wouldn't uh, enforce IP protection in the global south, and that's certainly something that could have been addressed. So, yes, a lot of this is, uh, you know, at the door of government, but, uh, but the way in which the pharmaceutical company operates and the way in which they've managed to increase their profits during this pandemic is, is really, um, you know, I think even uh, more of a factor in why we actually don't have access. Now, the last point. Every forum, solidarity, South African Institute for Race Relations, we all have to mobilize and organize. They are bringing cases that goes to the heart of what an equitable allocation will be and what an equitable approach will be. We have to make sure that those cases do not succeed. They could potentially topple the entire notion of having the national procurement model with national equitable allocation. Uh, where the criteria is basically not whether you're in the public or private sector. And so that that is a, a real concern. HAI has already written to their lawyers and said, if this does proceed to court, we're going to intervene uh, as a friend of the court. And then my leaders will kill me if I don't mention this. So the, the consensus around priority groups, we worry that there isn't sufficient attention from groups on the ground um, except for one or two that are focusing on two priority groups, refugees, asylum seekers and migrants and sex workers. So there are and already some countries that are excluding uh, refugees, migrants and asylum seekers or people under their occupation from vaccination programs. And I just think that, you know, that's that's something we're going to have to pay attention to, because as as Leslie said, while, you know, we can't be accused of vaccine nationalism, uh, in the region ourselves, but we also can't be excluding certain uh, priority and vulnerable groups. So I'm going to stop there. Thanks. Thank you, Comrade Fatima. Thank you, James. Thank you, Leslie. Uh, I'm just going to open up for the questions by showing of hands. Comrades, can I see your hands? Who has got a question that they need to ask? Am I correct by saying that I don't see any hands? I'm not surprised because there was a lot of discussions in the chat box. Um, maybe to start with, there was a issue of taking, of challenging it in the court, comment Fatima. Uh, there's a question from Miriam. What about the court action asked for the mandamans to compel our government to amend its patient law amend? Um, do you mind uh, responding to Miriam, Comrade Fatima. Sure. So the issue is that it's with Parliament. So Parliament has to actually expedite the process by which to adopt the law. So, you know, at this moment, we can't take the executive to court because the answer will be that it is with Parliament. What we need to do is create pressure on the opposition parties as well as government to try and uh, expedite that. There has been some movement in the last few months on the DTI committee, but we, uh, you know, you, you, you can expect that um, the DA for sure and some of the more free market right-wing groups will actually oppose that. So, 
it depends on the political will of, uh, frankly, of the ruling party now. Thank you, Comrade. Comrade Peter. Great. Thank you very much, Tinashe. This is actually a question to all the people attending the webinar, not just the speakers. As James said, about uh, about 47% of people in the country said they would reject the, um, the vaccine if it was offered to them. That by itself would block any chance of getting to this population level immunity. So can I ask of all the all the people attending here, who should we get this information about the vaccine uh, out to? To squash the rumors and conspiracies. This is almost like a war of ideas. Uh, the, the rumors are a site of struggle on whether we will successfully vaccinate, which means whether we can successfully end the pandemic in South Africa. So if people want to say, or in text, say which groups do you know of that we can give this sort of um, real information about the vaccines. Uh, thank you, Comrade uh, Tinashe. Thank you. Uh, there's a question from Peter, another Peter in, in, in the chat box. How, how do we avoid the vaccine-related corruption? There is, going, there is going to be a need to be a lot of procurement, and we saw both private and public sector corruption in the pandemic so far. That's far. So how are we going to deal with the challenges of corruption? Um, are there any other hands before we... Okay, can I get back to the speakers? So Tunashi, I'm happy to do a, a couple of comments. Uh, just on the corruption issue, um, so the vaccine itself uh, is going to be centrally procured and it's not like uh, a local company will produce the vaccine and it's not going to be feasible for the local company to approach the Department of Health and say, I will get you X vaccine to distribute to your people. There will certainly be opportunities for corruption because delivering the vaccine will require you know, a cold chain, it will require... Uh, other, you know, information systems. So clearly somebody could bid for an information system that's not going to work that will put money in their pocket. Um, so corruption is obviously a problem, but it's not like the PPE story where the actual uh, technology uh, is is invalid. Um, so I think we have a reasonable control over the actual vaccine. But, you know, fighting corruption requires oversight, requires transparency, and that system hasn't really changed since the PPE disaster, uh, and we have to push for it to be uh, open. Um, Peter's comment about, um, you know, reaching people, I think uh, it needs a real partnership between civil society and the state. Um, I think the state in the first wave I was very ambivalent about actually ceding any power to civil society to educate people because uh, there was often the sense that the state knew best or people who were health workers knew best. And, and we know that that didn't work. And we know many examples through history that that doesn't work. So I think we really need to have our civil society systems able to take the lead in that sort of uh, education. We also need like 
you know, health workers, ministers, sports people at the forefront of these campaigns uh, to reach ordinary people. Mm. Yeah. I don't think we can raise our hands on, on the chat or I haven't been able to raise my hand. Can I um, please go ahead, Comrade Russell? Pose a question. Look, um, I think thank you very much. I think all the presenters have done an excellent job in, in really communicating complicated information in the manner that is really accessible. Right? I'm uh, obviously a little bit more interested in South Africa's vaccine distribution plan, and particularly with these arrangements in terms of how they're being set up. You know, so we have three different funding pools for the vaccine, right? Then we have centralized procurement, which I support. But then the next level is when it's a little bit more blurry. You know, I, mean, I think there's like talk of a potential public-private partnership that would coordinate the rollout and the distribution of the vaccines. And given our current health system and the current media framing of, of, of state incapacity, I think there's a very real chance that the distribution could well be privatized. How do we guard against these? Getting first priority access to the vaccine, much in the same way as they got first priority access to care during COVID. I mean, poor people are dying at a higher rate than people with medical schemes because we're presenting much later at the hospitals and often too late. So how do we learn some of the lessons then? I know Lydia and, and Louis them and, and ourselves spoke about this uni universal or global treatment protocols. How do we make sure that the vaccine rollout as one universal or global protocol where the rules apply to everybody in the same way. And what needs to be done on our side to ensure that this happens. Thank you, over. Thanks, thanks comrade. Um, there, there, there is a, a query being raised by comrade uh, Patrick Bond here. What scope is there for the C19 organizing street protest at the office of local pro IP forces IG in Jobek, uh, uh, NGOs, uh, as well as Big Pharma. So I'm sure it's something that we also need to think about and try to probe if we are able to do a street protest. But then I'm not sure if with the current regulations are we allowed to do uh, 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 such kind of activities. Any response to Comrade Patrick Bond? Comrade Tanasha, I also had a question. So is there any attempt at, at, at giving it a go? Or did it come across as a comment? Okay, so we need to respond to Comrade, uh, two questions from Comrade Russell and Comrade um, uh, Patrick Bond. I'm happy to respond to Russell. Uh, just to make the comment that I think uh, national will set like the broad terms, but each province will develop its own rollout uh, plan, system, committee, whatever. And we have to try to get civil society into those structures. Uh, so, for instance, I know in the Western Cape, for instance, the Western Cape Health Department has invited um, a PHM, invited Tinashe onto an advisory committee, uh, uh, which would at least give information about what's going on. Uh, and those structures are the kinds of structures we have to get access to. So I'm not responding to Patrick because I can't remember the question. Okay, uh, Comrade uh, Comrade Fatima is, is 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 about to leave us. Uh, she's got another call at ten past uh, seven.
Are you still there, Comrade Fatima? Do you have any closing remarks before you join another meeting? No, uh, I'm, I'm covered. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, and I'm glad uh, you, you could make time in such a short notice. Thank you so much. Sure, it's my pleasure. Uh, people can email me or Marlies if, if there's any questions after this. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, Tinashe, just to pick up on Patrick's um, question, I mean, I think I think there is scope to, to take up the issue, but we have to have a focus. At the moment, it still feels a bit amorphous about, because uh, there's so little information. You know, is the problem that government's not telling us something? Is the problem, um, you know, the... Uh, pro-IP forces, well, I mean, they, they've been like that all the time. Uh, I wasn't aware that, you know, what of what Fatima described, so perhaps, uh, perhaps, yeah. And certainly putting pressure on embassies of countries that are opposing the waiver would be a good idea, I think. Could I come in, Chair? Yes, please, Comrade. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, in, the, in the gym at the moment, been listening intently. Um, I think we have to determine at what level of positivity do we think uh, protests are uh, advisable, that we should go ahead with them. Um, and I don't know if there's any literature out there from you know, activists uh, who, who are trying to gauge this question, but we are in the midst of a surge at a very critical time when things are, are going to be decided and so on. What we do know um, um, is, as Leslie said, that this rollout has to be, uh, the, you know, the design, the implementation uh, and the actual oversight and so on. We have to be involved at every level. We've got to get ourselves to the top level, uh, top table, at all, uh, you know, whether it's national, provincial, district, municipal, so on, uh, village level, this is critical for this, uh, the rollout to happen. At the same time, we've got pressing issues, we've got pressing global issues. We know, uh, relatively confident by now, I think, that we're going to get our first phase one and phase two off the ground. We have tremendous international uh, obligations, uh, not, not only to our wider region, but to the wider continent. And, and, and from what I, from where I'm standing, from what I can see, it's still very much piss poor. So we've got to determine two things: when is it we can actually physically protest? What have we got at our disposal up until then? You know, there's the call to action and so on. There's a meeting on Saturday. 3 p.m. People who register for that meeting will be sent a link. We've uh, got over 100 organizations so far in the last couple of days signed up. That includes the, uh, some individuals like the Archbishop and one in Casserals. We've, we've got to get more high-profile um, um, individuals there, and we've got to get all the trade unions on board, critical, particularly the public sector trade unions. Now, We've got five, six unions already on board. We need many more and we need all the federations. So two key things. When do we, uh, when does uh, our fellow activists in the health sector suggest it's safe for us to, to get out there? Because it's very difficult to 
to, to get the non-pharmaceutical interventions going all the time, and particularly if it's an illegal or spontaneous demonstration. And two, what must be the focus of that process? Thank you, comrades. Thank you, comrades. Um, I'm not sure if there are any further engagement to, co- to what comrade is raising here. I think maybe in response to Comrade Leslie, I think we've got to a time now where I think we almost have to, we all have different capacities and different influence, right? And I think I agree that a lot of this conversation is quite amorphous and very wide ranging. And given that where we are, you know, with a possible phase one implementation happening soon, you know, I think we need to maybe agree as a group where our particular strengths lie. We can still work in a coordinated way to campaign for equitable access to the vaccines. But I think some can, for instance, focus on the fixed patent laws and the trips and the, all of those kind of things and where that capacity lies. I think others can focus on ensuring equitable distribution of the vaccine across the nine provinces and nationally, and that we somehow maintain the prioritization groups and then feed into the group. I think then there's obviously the interest around governance oversight, which is maybe just as, uh, something for uh, a nice way of a euphemism for corruption and combating corruption, because there are little distribution contracts that could open themselves up to politically connected groups, similar to what happened with the PPE. But I think it would be good if we all focused in our areas of strength, rather than all of us trying to do everything. You know, and I think that's kind of where we are now and how we divide those roles is maybe the, the, the opportunity that lies ahead of us now. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much, Comrade Russell. Uh, Comrade Louis? Lack of transparency seems to be a really um, major problem here. I mean, if it attracts, if we can't, if you can't have civil action because of lack of transparency and the state not being open with us or trusting citizens, then surely this should be a folk within a campaign. It's, it's, um, it's kind of unacceptable that no one seems to know really what's going on. And, um, you know, I mean, the state is not taking the citizens into its confidence. And I think that's really a problem. Thanks, Louis. Comrade Desai, is that an old end? Uh, Comrade Peter, can you go ahead? Uh, yeah, Comrade uh, Tanasha and, and others. Um, look, uh, <coughs> in terms of civil society, I mean, what I'm wondering is this uh, lack of transparency is affecting Everybody, where where are the unions standing in terms of what they're calling for? Because, I mean, we have substantial unions whose um, members, both in like a frontline facing uh, things like supermarkets um, and in the health sector, are directly affected by this. Have we heard anything? Has there been any engagement? Because, I mean, what Louis said about transparency is key, but we have to get a solid block like fighting to get access to, to, to those levels of information. Thanks, comrades. I'm not sure if, 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 if we, we, we've got any further engagement on, on what's been raised or any other new comments that we need to put ahead or any other questions. If not, I'm going to ask our speakers to give the closing remarks. Is that okay? Thank you, comrade. Uh, James, are you still there? Yes, come to Nashe. Do we have um, any closing remarks, please? Sure. Yeah, I think that, like, I mean, what we've, we've talked about today is very wide ranging. I think that it was touched on. And I think we've, we've done a tour de force from the 
understanding side of of the basic science to the access side and then to what links the two being um, acceptance and, and vaccine hesitancy. Um, and I think that we're going to have to, in the coming weeks and months, once we get initial clarity on, on, on rollout, try and hit all three of those um, points. I think that just for um, follow-up, uh, if there are questions through any members of the coalition who attended or who listened to the recordings of this, so please get in, in contact and we'll try and make sure that at least from, um, the, the questions about vaccines are answered and that we can give those information to you. Uh, the Health Working Group is working on, through Section 27, a, a further series of infographics about um, vaccines um, that we'll be sharing, uh, which are uh, above the previous ones that we shared in December. Um, and, and hopefully we can run further trainings like this with other groups that are identified as Peter asked um, as being areas where we should focus, whether it is with um, um, church or religious groups or whether it's with trade unions or whether it's even with uh, political and government officials who are in, in need of this information or even with healthcare workers themselves. And I'm sure that a lot of this information is not um, tip of the tongue or front of mind for healthcare workers. And so it's good that we get it out there. Thanks all and thanks to the other speakers. Uh, Leslie, do you have any closing comments? Well, just to say that it's a process. We've started it. We're going to have to keep very close tabs on it. Uh, things will change. We're going to have to respond and adapt and be flexible and develop new strategies. I think there's some really good suggestions made in the chat and perhaps Tinashe, the you know the organisers could just pull together the things which were mentioned in the chat and make sure we don't lose them and we follow through on them at future meetings. Okay, thank you so much. Um, I'm sure Annelina is taking place in the chat and what's also been uh, said is being recorded. Uh, so we will pull together and see if we can produce some form of a document that we also share with uh, the coalition members. Comrades, I want to thank you so much for your participation and uh, and, and, and for your time. Uh, again, allow me to wish you a very prosperous 2021. Thank you so much for your participation. Good night to everyone.